0: Well, good morning and if you are that was a, a hearty good morning back to me Wow um, if you 're visiting with us this morning welcome we 're glad to have you with us today i want to want i don 't usually point out visitors, so if you 're visiting with us don 't get nervous about this, but these people can handle it. I just have to point out Dennis and Candace Grover are back here. Visiting with us, the Grovers were members of our church for a number of years, and Dennis serving as a deacon, and Candace serving in all kinds of ways, and they and their girls moved to Oklahoma. Just how long has it been? A year? A year and a half half that they moved to Oklahoma, and uh, uh, we have missed their presence with us. Glad you guys are visiting. Welcome. So you all take a chance to greet the Grovers this morning. Today we're in the Psalms, and uh, that's where we're going to be for a little while this summer. And I hope that you received the church newsletter at the end of this week. Many of you probably did and and maybe had the chance to read the little primer on Psalms that I gave to you there in that. A number of you have said that it would be hard to leave the book of Revelation because Revelation is, of course, such a unique encounter with God in the Scriptures. But the Psalms are actually a really good place to land coming from Revelation. Uh, the Psalms are, are similar in some ways, I suppose. Trimper Longman is an Old Testament scholar who describes them like this. He says, the Psalms are a kind of literary sanctuary in the Scripture, a place where God meets His people in a special way, a place where His people address Him with their praise and with their lament, with their complaints. It's a unique place where God meets His people in those sorts of ways. And so, here we are in Psalm 34 this morning. This is a psalm that David wrote, presumably before he was officially and actually king of Israel. And it's a psalm that gives us a taste of wisdom, born out of experience, which reminds of a truth that will shape your life. and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that as we gather this morning, you would give us your spirit so that we might indeed understand your word. Help us, Lord, to believe this good news. In your word, help us to see your goodness, to trust you for it, and to live all that should follow in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In November of 2012, Kenneth Bay, a South Korean-born U.S. citizen, was leading a tour group into North Korea. It was not his first time to do that. He had, some years before that, established a touring travel company for that very purpose, to lead tours of travelers, tourists, into North Korea. He had done this 18 times at this point, but this trip was different because of the way it ended. Kenneth was arrested by the authorities. And he was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in a North Korean prison camp for alleged hostile acts. The official description of his crime was this. It said he made a mistake by carrying a portable hard drive containing hostile, anti-North Korean material. And what was that hostile material? It was the gospel. Now, it was, in all fairness, a mistake. He actually did mistakenly carry these things with him because his goal as a Christian was not to smuggle contraband, as it were, into this tightly guarded country, but rather his goal as a Christian businessman was to bless the people of this country by bringing tourism to their country in order to stimulate and help their economy to be a blessing to the people of this country and certainly to 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 sow ground that might be fertile for the gospel as a result though he would spend the next two years in a prison camp and his situation in this prison camp was unique you may have read about it in the newspapers a couple of years ago he was the only prisoner in this particular prison camp for two years And there were 30 prison guards there assigned to watch him. 30 guards and one prisoner. Early on in his imprisonment in prayer and meditation on the gospel, Kenneth reflects now that he realized a couple of things. He realized, for one, what would seem obvious enough, that the Lord would have to be his deliverer from this circumstance. There was no other way that he was going to get out of this unjust imprisonment, other than the Lord himself delivering him. The second thing was this, in his words, I have to live each day carefully to demonstrate the Christian life to these men because I might be the only glimpse of Jesus that they ever see. Now my question for you is this. How in the world could he take that approach? I mean, how in the, in the world could he have such an attitude to think that he would would make extra effort to live the Christian life before these 30 sets of watching eyes because he might be the only demonstration of Jesus that they would ever see. How could he do that? Through 10-hour days of hard labor, carrying rock, and shoveling coal, and harvesting crops in the heat of the day by himself as 30 guards watched him do it. How could he do that while some of his captors taunted him with the notion that the rest of the world has forgotten about you, Kenneth? They don't remember you. How could he do this? He could do it because he had not forgotten the taste that was in his mouth. For years and years, Kenneth, a mature believer in Christ, had tasted again and again and again that the Lord is good, that the Lord is the one who delivers from our fears and troubles and afflictions, that the Lord is the one who hears the cry of the needy, that the Lord is the one who saves the crushed in spirit. It was a taste so strong in his mouth that the the circumstances, though leaning hard against it He still could live what he could taste. I know the Lord is good, he said. And so let me show it to those who see me. God is good. It's really a very simple lesson, isn't it? It's a very simple truth. But it's easy for us to forget. It's easy for us to neglect. The kids at school gang up on you. Your high school teachers lose their patience with your youthful confusion and adolescence your adult child goes off the rails your job loses all its stability a nation's leaders take an evil and redefine it as noble and you begin to wonder is god really good the psalms are are great ground for us to wrestle with that question that's a large part of why we have the psalms to so wrestle with questions like this Even as the book of Revelation painted such a a stark contrast between the deceptive, counterfeit, would-be authority of Satan's evil with and against the majestic, powerful truth of God's good. God is good. And with this psalm, David exhorts you to taste that, to see it, and to shape your life around it. He starts off by giving us a testimony of his own experience through this psalm. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David writes in the psalm about fears and troubles and afflictions, and he calls himself a poor man. Apparently, it wasn't his life that was good at this point. Evidently, there were were troubles around him, problems all around him. And you can see it in the inscription that precedes the psalm. I didn't read it moments ago when we read the psalm, but you can take a look at it there now just before verse 1. This is a psalm of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out, and he, that is David, went away. There is, of course, a story behind that. This is one of eight psalms that are ascribed to David in a similar way, evidently being a description of this particular low point in his young life. Eight psalms that David penned during this sequence of events in his life. Seven of those psalms are psalms of lament. They're psalms of complaint because his circumstances were horrible. This is the one exception. It's a psalm of wisdom. Some would call it a psalm of thanksgiving, actually. And the story is a story that Christians often know quite well. It's it's a common story to know. You can read about it in 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. There in this story, Saul is the king of Israel, and he has been for quite some time. Years, in fact, the king of Israel and the Philistines are the, the neighboring country who are constantly warring against the Israelites, always aggressive, always seeking to take over land that doesn't belong to them. And the Philistines are provoking the Israelites to war. And, and David is just a young teenager, but his older brothers are off at war with King Saul and the Israelite army to defend against the Philistines. And David's father sends David out to the lines to, to take refreshments to his brothers, to check on them, to see how they're doing. And You know the story, the Philistine champion Goliath, a giant of a man from a city called Gath, is standing there in the valley challenging the Israelites, just send one of your men out here to challenge me. And whichever of us wins that duel wins the war for the whole army. The Israelites were terrified, of course, they didn't want to face off with this giant. And so David himself, seeing this happen, says, this is ridiculous. No man can stand against God's army. I'll take him on. And so he does. You know the story. With one stone and his sling, he slays Goliath, puts him down. And that's the beginning of David's military success, which just goes on from there. And the Israelite people begin to sing a new song. And the song includes words like this. Saul has slain his thousands. David has ten thousands. It's a nod to the king. Oh, the king's done some stuff for us, but it's love for David. And Saul, we're told, is very angry about it. He's a jealous man, and he hates David because of it, and he begins to attempt to kill David. So David had to flee. david had, David's on the run now from his own king. You know the story? david David runs looking for shelter, and it must be some couple of years later, perhaps. David actually flees to Gath, the city from which Goliath had come some time before. It's a city of the Philistines, and it's a city where David thought that since he wasn't king, I presume David must have thought he could go unnoticed in this city and find some refuge. But he did not go unnoticed. They recognized him. In fact, they knew the song, and they thought that he was the king. This is David who's slain his tens of thousands. And not only that, but he was, at the time, carrying Goliath's sword. I'm not sure what was going on in David's mind, what his reasoning was to do this, but this is where he ended up seeking shelter, and it was no shelter at all. He was actually facing death, and he knew it, and he was very afraid. And so, the story goes, he changed his behavior before the king he began to act like a crazy man. He began to pretend that he was insane, scratching the walls and drooling all over his beard and pretending like he was out of his mind as a means of deliverance. And the king said some interesting words. As a common sense king, evidently he was. He said, look, I have enough crazy men in my kingdom. I don't need another one. Send them away. Kick him out. Get rid of this guy. And so David was sent away and he was delivered in this ridiculous sort of way. But David escaped to a cave and there he was still completely alone and there he sought the Lord. There this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. And his brothers came to him there eventually and and others, people who were in distress and debt and bitter in soul, they all gathered around David and he became their captain. Now, Not every dark night of the soul ends with such a tangible turnaround. I mean, I know, surely, you've had your own. You've had your own sorts of dark nights of the soul for whatever reason. And maybe they've not ended with such a clear and obvious turnaround. David, of course, was still a fugitive. But he had a taste in his mouth. The taste in his mouth was still strong enough that he actually insists in this psalm, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. He lacks nothing. Now, David, of course, lacked plenty. In the eyes of the world, he lacked all kinds of things. But in the eyes of a believer, he lacked nothing because he recognized that the angel of the Lord is is encamped around him. In other words, he had the favor of God Almighty. He had the favor of the only God, the creator who made all things. And so do you. So do you and so do I. In our own dark nights of the soul, we have the favor of God because if you're in Christ, you can't lose that favor if you revere God, if you fear the Lord. And so David turns from his experience to a lesson, a lesson of wisdom for us. In verse 11, you can can look there and see This psalm becomes much like a proverb, doesn't it? This is where the wisdom begins to show itself here. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will teach you, in other words, to revere God. This is, after all, the thing that distinguishes between those who are blessed of God and those who are not. The one reveres God... And the one does not. And how does David propose to begin to teach this important lesson? He does it with a question. Verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? It's kind of a funny question if you think about it. It's sort of ironic because David asks it in such a way as to suggest that there might not be many men or women like this. He's kind of trying to provoke your thoughts, isn't he? What man is there who desires life? Well, there are a few of those. What man or woman is there who loves their days, who wants to see good in their days? This is a universal human condition. I mean, David is, is, is provoking the thought that, that all of you are like this. Everyone is like this. You do want this, right? You want good in your days. Well, then, here's some wisdom for you. Get your theology right. Memorize the catechism and fill your head with Bible knowledge. Is that what David says? Those are all good things. I don't mean to to denigrate those things. They're all very important elements of the Christian life. But that's not what David says. What is it that David wants you to understand in order to fear to revere God? Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What's wrong with that? At least to our ears. It sounds like moralism, doesn't it? It's, it's an imperative. It's telling you what to do. And we have a kind of an uncomfortable relationship with that in the Christian life, don't we? It's like, if you want to be on God's good side, then watch your tongue and do good. That's more like the way we talk about Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's how we talk about those things. And listen, I hate moralism. You've heard me talk about moralism before. I hate the idea of moralism, that you must do certain things in order to be on God's good side. That's moralism. And maybe the reason I hate it so much is because I am one. That's just kind of the way my heart is bent and leans towards being moralistic and expecting you to be the same way. I've heard of Christians, and preachers even, who so leaned against moralism that finally they decided that it's actually anti-gospel to ever give imperatives in the Christian life. Don't ever tell people what to do. But that would miss the gospel, wouldn't it? In fact, you'd have to strike out about half the Bible if you did that. There's a whole lot of telling you what to do in Scripture. Peter was an apostle who got this, who understood the gospel. After a lot of bungling and fumbling along the way, Peter did finally get it. And he wrote a letter. You heard some of it read moments ago. A letter to Christians dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world in the first century. And Peter wrote to remind them. He said to them, you were... "...ransomed by the blood of Christ. So, put away all malice. Put away your deceit and your hypocrisy, your envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good." guess where Peter got that phrase? He knew his Psalms. He he knew Psalm 34. He, He knew these words from this Psalm. If in fact you have tasted that God is good, if you have that flavor in your mouth, then put away all malice and envy and slander and deceit and hypocrisy. Put those things away. Peter's explaining this Psalm to us. If you have... Tasted the goodness of the Lord, then your life will show it. Your life will demonstrate it for those who watch you. If you revere the God who made you, then you will live what you taste. The gospel is actually a simple thing, you know. I mean, we can make all kinds of complexities about it, and there are all kinds of intricacies about it. I mean, you can indulge in the intricacies of God's redemptive plan. For a lifetime, people make careers out of such things. There's not much money in it, by the way, but but people make careers in such things. You can trace the threads of grace that run from Genesis to Revelation. You can read the stories of the church through the ages and see God's goodness overflowing the boundaries of everyone. You can write about all the good things that God has done and fill the world with books. But in the end... The gospel and the fear of God that it embodies is very simple. Do you love? Do you love with the words that you speak? And do you love with the things that you do? Do you love with the grace that comes from your lips? And do you love with the peace that comes from your hands and your feet? Do you love? Peter here is not just taking a glancing shot at Psalm 34 in his little letter towards the back of your Bible. He, He quoted from it extensively. You heard it moments ago in that New Testament reading. Peter is calling Christians to show the fruit of their faith in the life they live in the first century and therefore in the 21st century as well. Peter wrote to them, You were called to be a blessing that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and deceit. Let him turn from evil and do good. He's quoting from Psalm 34. I mean, this psalm is the ground from which Peter leverages his exhortation to Christians to demonstrate the fear of God by doing good. By their love you shall know them. I have to brag on you, to you, for just a moment. Because it's, it's, it's always an encouraging thing for a pastor to find things to brag about his congregation. And there's much to brag about this congregation. There are always things that you can think of to criticize. I have to brag. We have a, a, a constant rolling culture in our church of meal sign-ups. I don't know, hopefully you see the church new church email each week and and read through that to see what's going on in the life of our church. If you don't, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and fe- confess your sin, but you should read the email each week. And you'll see there often a meal sign-up for some reason, for, for one of you as families in the church. And most of the time it's because a baby has been born. Recently It's. has be- been because of an adoption and even a surgery. And Jan and John and I sometimes in the office kind of laugh about this when we send out the email. It's as though once the email is sent, a race begins. If you want a spot signed up on one of those lists to take a meal, you better be quick because the servants in this church fill those lists fast. Because they're so eager to do good for each other. You love one another. And so you want to do good for each other. You want to bless each other. You're not thinking about Psalm 34 when you sign up for a meal. Though maybe this week you will. But you want to do good for one another. You want to love one another with your words and with your actions. And then I learned of... A couple in our congregation who are empty nesters, their children are grown and gone, who gave their time and their energy and their efforts to a young couple in our church whose hands are full of children and one additional children now, gave themselves to this family for an evening to give them relief. Why did they do that? Because they have a taste in their mouth. They taste that God is good. They know that the gospel has been good to them, and so they can't help but to be good to their brothers and their sisters, to be good to those around them, to show the life of Jesus to anyone who's watching. This is what David is after in this lesson of wisdom, but to assure us of God's goodness, to to persuade us of its inevitability, he turns then to a hint of redemption Notice the poetic language of verses 15 and 16. David's poetry here, I think, actually gives a, a quick summary of the book of Revelation long before it was ever written. David says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. David was thinking about his own circumstance, his own situation. God was turning his eyes to David and hearing his cry. But where do you see that in the book of Revelation? Do you remember? The saints hiding under the altar? As chaos ensues in God's judgment, the saints are hiding under the altar, crying out to God, How long, O Lord, must we endure this? And the Lord hears their cry. He turns their eyes to them and and exhorts them, encourages them to patience. David says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory from the earth. Where in Revelation do you see that? That's not hard to find, is it? I mean, throughout God's revealing of that counterfeit trinity and his destruction of Babylon, that that instrument of Satan and his allies to deceive and to draw people away from the truth, to draw people away from the goodness of God and to the evil of the imposter, God destroys those things. He, he's against those things. He cuts them off from the memory of the earth. One day that will be true. The whole of Revelation is actually summed up in these two verses because the goodness of God is clearly seen in the redemption of his people. Now, David is a realist here. I mean, he's, he's, he's a realist. He knows what's real and true in your experience in life and his own in fact, some of you are troubled. Some of you are brokenhearted. Some of you are crushed in spirit. Some of you know affliction even now. And David in the psalm wants you to believe that the Lord will deliver. Even if you endure the pain of those realities, redemption will come as God is, has, has come and is coming to claim his own sons and daughters, to restore them, to make their lives new. Redemption will come. And it's hard to anticipate what David had in mind in verse 20. What does he say there? He keeps all his bones, this one who's afflicted. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, I'd be willing to bet, if I were a betting man, that David didn't know the long-term redemptive projection of his poetic reflection right here i'd be willing to bet that david wasn't cognizant of where these words were really going i mean david was a realist is is it true that that christian bones are never broken in affliction no it's not true i mean bones are broken all the time if you want to be literal about it this is poetry but if you want to be literal about it christians suffer all kinds of harm in this world david was a man of war He knew better than that. He's writing poetry here. But there's one thing I suspect that David probably did know. He knew the Passover regulations for his own people to celebrate the supper that called their attention to their coming Redeemer. Do you remember that? As David thinks back into the history of his people, our people, he remembers that that the Israelites, as they were to be delivered out of Egypt, as Moses led them, on the last night they were there, what did they do? They gathered in families around a supper of a lamb. They killed a lamb. They spread his blood on the doorposts of their house, and they, they ate the Passover meal in anticipation of deliverance. A Redeemer was coming because the blood of that lamb would protect them from judgment. But there's a little detail offered there back in Moses' day, about that lamb, do not break any of its bones. I'm not really sure why. I don't know exactly why that instruction was given, and I don't know exactly why David was thinking about this, if in fact he really was at the time, but it certainly plays into what he's working with here, because a thousand years after David wrote this psalm, the Apostle John would think about it as he reflected on the crucifixion of Jesus and all of its aftermath. John recognized that 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 in the aftermath of the crucifixion, the soldiers came, and in order to expedite the death of these three criminals of the state, the soldiers began to break the legs of the two criminals on either side. Breaking their legs would... Would would increase the speed of their death. It would only cause them to sink down and to die that much quicker. When they got to Jesus, he was already dead. He's sovereign over life and death. And I suppose he had chosen to breathe his last before his bones were broken. And so John explains that this happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John, like Peter, is helping us to understand Psalm 34. Every psalm points to the need of your soul. And every psalm like this one points your soul to Jesus. After some 735 days of hard, lonely, unjust labor, Kenneth Bay was released. And upon his reflections of his experience there, he has written a book to tell that story. And the title of his book is Telling. The title of his book is Not Forgotten. Not Forgotten. Now, I imagine he's thinking of a number of things in that title. He's reflecting on the fact that his captors were wrong. His friends had not forgotten him. His country had not forgotten him. His God had not forgotten him. He also had not forgotten. He had not forgotten the taste that was in his mouth, the taste of the gospel that called him to live his life in such a way that Jesus would be seen. The Psalms are a sanctuary of Scripture where God meets his people directly to stir their hearts, to hear their cries, and to give himself To them. Have you tasted that your God is good? Then live what you taste. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we give you thanks that you have called us to belong to you, that you have blessed us with your gospel, that you have drawn us by your Spirit and granted that we might have faith to trust you. We pray, Lord, that as we come to this communion table this morning, that we might believe all the more, that we might recognize your goodness to us, and that we might live in such a way that Jesus would be seen by all who are around us. And we pray in his name. Amen.